Well, I am trusting that the Lord will do for me, for us all, just what we sang a moment earlier, and flood our weaknesses with strength. I want you to open your Bible with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and read verses 1 through 5. The Word of God says, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. I realize we've just pulled a a golden nugget out of Paul's epistle to the Thessalonian church. And Lord willing, after I pray, I'm going to try briefly to set it in its place so that we can reap the full benefit of it. So pray with me if you would. Father, we come to your word Lord, we confess our great need of it. Lord, we confess that it is the desire of our, of our heart and soul. May it be said in truth that this is the desire of our heart and soul in this moment in time to be fed from the truth of your word, that it would have some effect upon us. Let us not sit coldly in the hearing of your word. But Lord, we pray and ask that you would come alongside of us even now, making the word clear and plain, showing us how we can walk in obedience to it, how we can keep these commands unto your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So while the first five verses of the third chapter are the focus this morning, I want you to go back with me into the first few verses of chapter 1. Because the request, there are two requests that Paul asks for prayer concerning in those verses that we read. First, he simply says, pray for us. And in that he means Paul, Silas, and Timothy, specifically mentioned in the introduction or the greeting. But then he also asks for prayer that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified. This was the subject of our prayer meeting on Wednesday evening, this verse. That the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified. But then Paul says in that first verse, just as it is with you. So the correlation that we need to make is it was because of the actions, the faith, the activity perhaps of the Thessalonian church that Paul gives these two requests. He's saying, pray for us, that we would be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. Pray for the advance of the gospel wherever we go, just as it is with you. So what a tremendous expression of God's conquering love and grace the Thessalonians are when Paul says, pray for us that it would go everywhere else just like it has gone among you. Wouldn't it be something to be a part of that kind of congregation? 
And as you yearn for that, let me remind you, this congregation had trouble. It was not perfect. Paul addresses some of their imperfections in his first and second epistle written to them. But I have you back up with me to the third verse of chapter 1. Because Paul, as he usually does, instructs the church that he is praying for them. And then he asks for prayer for himself. But I want you to see the reason why he is so thankful to the Lord. Verse 3 says, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly. The faith of the Thessalonian church was not a static, dormant faith. It was living and vibrant, growing exceedingly. How does this manifest itself in a people of God? Well, Paul says, the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. That's the first. If your faith is growing exceedingly in the Lord then your love for the Lord's people is going to be increasing. I think we see that all throughout the scriptures, specifically in Paul's epistles in the New Testament. Your love for Christ is going to be reflected in the way you love Christ's people. It's just that simple. But he also goes on to say, we boast of you among all the churches of God for your patience and Faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. So their faith was growing exceedingly in the midst of trouble. Search the scriptures, search church history, and what you will find is that the faith of God's people grows most vibrantly and exceedingly in the midst of trouble. What an opportunity the Lord has afforded us for our faith to grow in the day in which we live. But I want you to notice the next phrase, which begins verse 5. Paul says, which is manifest evidence. The word manifest there means clear and plain. He says, this is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom. So don't miss what Paul has said to this point. He says, I'm praying for you because your faith is growing exceedingly. Your patience and faith are growing even in the face of persecution and tribulation. Paul says that this is manifest evidence. Now notice, of the righteousness of God, the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. God declaring you and I righteous through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is in view here. And Paul is saying that the inroads of the gospel into their lives and the growth of of faith and grace in them clearly proves that God is justified in making us now members of the kingdom. I understand that's interesting language from Paul, but it's greatly encouraging, isn't it? Notice 
What is driving all of this? Certainly the grace of God underscores it, but what is driving all of this is the exceeding growth of faith and the manifest evidence of that faith that is growing. Then we're reminded in this first chapter of vengeance belonging to the Lord. He says in the sixth verse, it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. Think about that for just a moment. Those who were troubling the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul here says it is a righteous thing with God to repay them with tribulation. Those who are troubling you. And give to you who are troubled rest. Isn't this one of the things we yearn for? One of the things that we are hoping for and that hope not being in vain that God will through Christ in time bring rest to all those who are troubled and eternal rest. He says this rest comes when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God. And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Note there, the gospel is something to be believed, yes. The gospel is something to be obeyed, yes, as well. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe. Because our testimony among you was believed. So let me give you a summary of these first few verses, which is the basis for his request for prayer in the third chapter. Paul says and reiterates these truths faith alone saves. Yet, the faith that saves is never alone. The faith that saves is accompanied by, we might say it more accurately this way, is born of and sustained by the Holy Spirit of God. The faith that has saved you is accompanied by the Spirit of God. The third person of the Godhead will make himself known, will he not? That's why Paul says, your faith is growing exceedingly to the point that I can say it's manifestly evident, even so that God is righteous in considering you worthy recipients of his kingdom. No one can question God as if anyone could really do that anyway, but Paul is here Clearing God of any injustice. Paul is not here saying that it is righteous of God to consider those worthy of the kingdom who give no evidence at all, but clear, plain, manifest even evidence of their salvation. This is what Paul declares in other places. Romans 8, 14. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So answer the question, who are the sons of God? 
Who are they? What distinguishes them from those who are not the sons of God? Well, to use that verse, 814 of Romans, to answer the question, it is those who are led by the Spirit of God. That leads us all the way down into the third chapter in verse 1. And I want to point out this phrase again with you, where Paul says, I'm asking you to do this for me, for us, wherever we go, that the gospel would have just an entrance to those people as it has among you. Paul here is, is holding forth the truth that the gospel had triumphed gloriously in the lives of these people. And the first point that I want to make out of the third chapter in verse 1 is that Paul asks for prayer concerning the advance of the gospel. He says it this way, finally, brethren, in summary, brethren, pray for us, beseech the Lord on our behalf, intercede for us. That's what prayer is oftentimes. Very, very often we confuse this issue of prayer and we see it as being something that we come to the Lord with for ourselves and for the things that we need. Now, obviously, we are a needy people. There are things that we need, but that's not all that prayer is. That's not even the beginnings of what prayer is. Prayer is, first of all, acknowledging the goodness of God and then praying in accord with his word, praying in accord with those things that change our own heart and mind as we are praying them. How is it that God can give you the desire of your heart your heart being desperately wicked, who can know it? Well, the way he gives you the desire of your heart is to change the desires of your heart. And he does that through praying. Some of you can testify to the fact and experience, the longer you have prayed for a specific thing, over time your thinking on it has completely changed. You've come to a 180 in your understanding and God has changed your heart and mind through prayer and thereby he's answered your prayer Given you the desire of your heart. Paul is saying, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly. Now, very often so far, and I will continue to do this throughout this sermon, I'm referring to the word of the Lord as simply being the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not the word of God general that Paul has in view here. Though that would be a, a right prayer for us to say that the word of God in its entirety that expresses all of the righteous requirements and commands of God, that that would run and have free course among us, that would not be wrong to pray. But I want to just show you the specificness of what Paul is saying. He says the word, the message of the Lord, of the Lord Jesus Christ, the word that concerns or accords with the Lord, and we just simply refer to that as the gospel of Jesus Christ. That this gospel may run swiftly and be glorified. I want to give you several alternate readings of this. They're all helpful, all getting across the same point in a different way. The King James, I actually prefer the King James reading here when he says that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified. That gives more of the request for Paul 
Not this, not just that it may run swiftly, but that it may have free course. In other words, that it be unhindered, that there be no obstacle, that it does not conquer among you. The New American Standard Version, which is touted as being the most literal of our English trans- translations, says that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be glorified. The English Standard Version says that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. This is what Paul is asking a church who has manifest evidence of faith to pray for him and his cohorts. Let's look at the prayer specifically. Pray for us that the word of the Lord may run. It's interesting. This word run is all throughout the scriptures. There are all kinds of places I could point you to to see this word in action. I'll point you to just one. In the parable of the prodigal son, The father is waiting for the return of the son. And when he sees him, what does he do? He runs. With all of his might. With all of his strength. Because joy has overcome him. His son, which was lost, is now found. He is returning. And there's a great... Great book you can read on this. It's called The Tale of Two Sons by John MacArthur, where he goes into great detail of the father's running, how undignified it may have been, how hindered he would have been because of the clothing of his day, but yet how he, through all of that, through casting off the shame of running, through casting off all the hindrances that he would have had, runs with all of his might to meet his wayward son. This is what Paul is asking for prayer concerning the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ may run unhindered amongst people. That there be no obstacles that it will not overcome. And notice the outcome when the gospel of Christ is running swiftly, when it has free course, when it is speeding ahead, when it is spreading rapidly, then there is glory unto this glory given unto this gospel. How often in our day is the gospel of Jesus Christ maligned, scorned, mocked, derided? But Paul says when the gospel is running swiftly, when it is unhindered amongst the people, then this same message of the gospel is glorified. It's exalted into its rightful place. And then behind that, the God who is the author of this gospel, the Christ who accomplished this gospel are being glorified. That's the desire, I suppose I can say this in truth, the desire of any sincere people of faith. They want to see God glorified. Paul is telling us that that's going to happen when the gospel is glorified. The gospel cannot be glorified if it is not preached. The gospel cannot be glorified if it is not believed, if it is not trumpeted and heralded as being the very power of God unto salvation. If we are ashamed of the gospel, then it will not be glorified among us. That's why Paul would say that verse we quote so often, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the very power of God unto salvation. If there is any 
thing in us, in you individually, in us as a group, that invokes some type of shame for the gospel message, then we can just set aside our hope and prayer that it will run and have free course among us. The gospel will be glorified amongst the people who glory in the gospel. It's just that simple. The correlation that's being made here by Paul between his description and prayer for the people in chapter 1 and his request of this same people is when the truth of the gospel comes home to roost in the heart. The gospel planted there by the Holy Spirit, that root will produce fruit and this saving gospel of the saving God will be honored and glorified for its powerful work. You realize the greatest miracle in the scriptures is not the healing of the blind. It's not the healing of the lame. It's not even raising the physical dead. The greatest miracle in the scriptures is is the conversion of a heart once dead in sin, now brought to life, regenerated before God, declared righteous before God. That's the greatest of all miracles, and it's happened to many of you in this room. And it's the great desire we have for our children, for our unsaved friends, family members, acquaintances, whoever comes in our path. Before we move on, let me make a few what I hope prove to be helpful applications from this point. We are to pray for the advance of the gospel. Just as it advanced among the Thessalonians, remember, in persecution and trouble, tribulation. This is our only hope. This is our only hope. Christians, hear me well. Our hope is not in a political savior, regardless of what his name is. And even if it's a name that we have not yet heard, our hope is not in man. Our hope is in this gospel of Jesus Christ, which completely changes hearts and minds. We do right when we pray for awakening in our country. Let's be specific what an awakening is and how it comes. Awakenings come to those who are dead in sin and are most usually the product of a slumbering, slothful people of God coming to their senses. A people who have been lulled to sleep by worldly pursuits and perspectives who begin to seek and pray for revival first among themselves and then that apathetic people once revived of God, may very well see an awakening in the people around them. Not to limit God on what he can do, but I I think that it's right for us to see those things in that order. You want to be used of God to see an awakening in our country. Well, that's going to begin a little more closer to home, isn't it? It's going to begin in your own heart and life. As God revives you by his spirit, according to his word, go back and read Psalm 119. There are nine times in that psalm where the psalmist says, revive me according to something. And it's all according to the truth of God in some way or another or some activity of God 
And then when the people of God are revived in that manner, then we will be fit and prepared to be used of God to awaken those around us. But not until. I thought about this this week as well. What would it look like if we were to sincerely pray for the advance of the gospel and then the Lord granted our request? That is the reason we pray, right? That the Lord would hear us and that he would give an answer. What would it look like if we as a people in this small local assembly of believers, if we were to ask the Lord to bless his gospel so that it may run swiftly and be glorified among us, what do you suppose the outcome may be? Probably frighten most of us. Sinners would be converted. Our children would be converted. Our friends, our co-workers, strangers would be converted. When the word of the Lord is running swiftly amongst the people and glorifying itself, there is conversion that is happening. You can go back and read the first epistle of Paul to the Thessalonians, and that's what he says in that first chapter. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for the appearing of his Son from heaven. That's a small snapshot of what true biblical conversion looks like. So if the Lord were to answer this prayer, there would be conversions amongst us. These conversions would be marked by repentance, but yet there would also be repentance of just the lazy, slothful, cold-hearted people of God as well. There would be in us a new willingness to make ourselves vulnerable and be considered fools for Christ's sake. If you're honest with yourself, many of the opportunities that the Lord kicks open before you to make the gospel known, we reach out and shut that door very quickly because of our own vulnerability so that we won't look foolish. To save face or to save some kind of respectability. After all, the world sees those who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ as being simple-minded. Those who are under some kind of delusion. Those who are wishing for things to be like they were hundreds of years ago. That's why even Paul would say that he is considered a fool for Christ's sake. If the gospel, when the gospel is running swiftly amongst the people, there is a new willingness to make yourself vulnerable and be considered a fool for Christ's sake. But I believe there's something else that accompanies that. While there is new and increasing willingness to be vulnerable, there is an increasing unwillingness to tolerate frivolity and worldliness in the church. God help us on this point. If the gospel of Jesus Christ, which calls men to come and die to themselves, 
If the gospel of Jesus Christ, which calls men to come and take up their cross and follow Christ, to live in his example, to walk in the example of Paul and other people who have followed him before, if that gospel is running swiftly among us, then there has to be an increasing unwillingness for us as a people to tolerate foolishness. And any kind of worldliness that has creeped into the church, I I reminded myself and a friend of mine this week, I heard H.B. Charles Jr. say, he's a, he's a contemporary preacher, he, he's a, a good, one of the best preachers that I've heard recently, he can just flat out deliver the word of God. He said something to this effect, the church has leaned over trying to reach the world and has fallen in. And he's so true. If the gospel is running and having free course amongst the people, we'll be fed up with foolishness. And desiring to walk in the good old paths of Scripture. Those worldly entertainments and enticements, after all, are nothing but fakes. They are an attempt to show that there is real gospel vitality in life, but they are completely void of gospel truth and gospel power. When the gospel is running and having free course amongst the people, these things will be seen for what they are. There's another application. When the gospel is running and having free course amongst the people, when the word of the Lord is being glorified among a people, it is dominating that people. And I say that in a positive sense. What I mean by that is that it is shaping, fashioning, molding a people into the likeness of Christ. The same Christ who loved righteousness and abhorred the effects of sin in the world. The Word of God will dominate you to the point that your mind is renewed. That's what Paul was writing about in the 12th chapter of Romans. When the Word of God is running and having free course amongst us, the Word of the Lord, Christ is being formed in those who were once enslaved to the adversary. Simply said... When the gospel of Christ is glorified in and among you, there is manifest evidence of the work of God in you. How can this not be true? How can it not be true? If the word of the Lord is having free course, if it is unhindered. Oh, that's Paul's first request. Pray for himself, his companions, so that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified. His second request. Is pray. For deliverance. From unreasonable. And wicked men. For not all have faith. Now Paul is not just stating the obvious here right. We know that not all have faith. We know there are believers and that there are unbelievers. Paul has something more. Paul has something deeper than that for us to understand. Paul is explaining what lies behind the activity of these unreasonable and wicked men. Those without faith exhibit their enmity towards the truth. 
And this antagonism is completely in accord with their nature and their destiny. Those words aren't mine. I didn't write down whose they were, just know they're not mine. Paul is saying, not all have faith. That's why they are acting unreasonably and wickedly. But let's not miss what Paul is praying. As a preacher of the gospel, as an apostle of Christ, he is saying, pray for my deliverance. More and more. As a church and as individuals, we need to pray for those who are publicly proclaiming the gospel because unreasonable, wicked, faithless men want their mouths closed. The problem with that is that God wants their mouths open. Jesus, sitting on the side of the mountain, about to give the Sermon on the Mount, he opened his mouth. Paul opened his mouth at Mars Hill. These things are modeled for us in Scripture. Paul is saying, pray for us that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men because they are acting out the state of their not having faith at all. Now let's talk about these unreasonable and wicked men for just a moment. They were real They were alive and well in Paul's day, and they have been since, and they are today. There are those who oppose the gospel, and many times they are in places of authority. They are in places of elected authority, flat out denying the truths of the gospel, but going further than just denying them, mocking them. What is the proper attitude for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ towards such? First of all, we pray for them. Is that what we're instructed to do? So that we may lead quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and reverence? We need to pray for them as objects of our pity and and objects of our evangelism. And very often our prayers will go something like I heard my good friend and brother Mac Tomlinson pray one time for one of our leaders. God saved them, and if you won't, restrain them. But his language was a little more strong than that. Save them is our first desire, but if they will not come to Christ... Restrain them. Remove them from their position. It's not wrong to pray for restraint, confusion, frustration of the plans of wicked and unreasonable men. Those are his first two requests. Pray for the advance of the gospel and pray for our deliverance, for not all have faith. But then the reminder, the Lord is faithful. Now remember the context of this, this little paragraph that we've pulled out. Where the context is Paul is writing to 
an exceedingly faithful people. Their faith is growing. They are giving manifest evidence of the same, but yet they are enduring persecution and tribulation. And so in the midst of this, Paul is reminding them in the third verse, the Lord is faithful. And this, I think, completely overshadows his request for his own safety and for his own concern. Paul wanted Christians currently experiencing the opposition of wicked men to know something. What did he want them to know? The Lord is faithful. Let me go back and read a couple of verses out of chapter 1 that I didn't read previously. Verse 9. Speaking of these wicked and unreasonable men, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness, the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is reminding here in the third verse of chapter 3, the Lord is faithful to accomplish all of that and every other thing that he has said in Scripture that he would accomplish. The Lord is faithful. Listen to what Paul would write to Timothy. He says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. For this is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we also live with him. If we endure, we also will reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. And get this part. If we are faithless, he remains faithful faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. That's the foundational, most base reason for the Lord's faithfulness to us as a people is because he will not deny himself and he has said he would be faithful to us. They go together. I realize that. But Paul is saying the Lord is forever faithful and his faithfulness is acted out in at least two ways that Paul describes here in the third verse. The Lord is faithful, first of all, to establish you. This is a tremendous word when it's applied and rightly understood to a Christian who finds themselves in the midst of persecution and trouble. Persecution and trouble in the life of a Christian oftentimes makes us unstable. Makes us susceptible to being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Paul says here the Lord is faithful to first of all establish you. The word means that he will make you stable. He will set you fast and he will strengthen you. You may ask the question, how can I go on living a faithful Christian life in a world that hates Christ? The only answer to that question is the Lord is faithful. He'll establish you. You and I have no ability or strength in our own to establish ourselves and make ourselves in the end prove to be faithful. We'll stumble and fall at every turn. We'll bring dishonor to the name of Christ at every turn if he doesn't come alongside and help. Paul says he will. 
He is faithful to do just this. He will establish you. As glorious as that truth is, note the second. He will guard you from the evil one. I don't know where I read this this week, and I hope I get this right. Someone was asking another person going through a hard time, through trial and tribulation, is it causing you to lose sleep? And the reply was, the scripture tells me the Lord never sleeps or slumbers. I don't see why both of us should stay awake. He will guard you from the evil one. Do you believe that? The Lord is faithful. Come what may. If this, if the greatest attack that you can imagine would come upon you, or us as a nation, whatever it may be, the Lord is faithful and He will guard you from the evil one. That doesn't mean your physical life will be preserved. It doesn't mean that your physical life will always be lived in health and prosperity. What it does mean is in the end, it will be well with you. It will be well with you. He is faithful and will see you through to the very end. Go back and read verse 6 and 7 of that, of that first chapter with me. Proof again. It is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty Angels, the Lord is faithful to establish you here and now and guard you all the way to the end. Peter would say it this way, we are kept reserved by him. Paul reiterates the fact that this confidence is in the Lord. We have confidence in verse 4. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you. How so? Both that you do presently and will do in the future the things that we command you. Now notice this. Please hear this. Present obedience leads to future obedience. Present obedience leads to future obedience. If you want to be obedient to the Lord tomorrow don't wait for tomorrow to come. Be obedient today. Paul says our confidence is in the Lord in this, that you are obeying now and you will obey the things we command in the future. Illustration for this point. If your two or three-year-old child doesn't obey you now, don't expect them to obey you when they're 10 or when they're 16. That same logic can be applied to our Christian obedience. If we are not being obedient now, then our future obedience is suspect, to say the least. And then finally, in verse 5, after praying for the advance of the gospel, deliverance from evil men, reminding them that the Lord is faithful to establish and guard and that his confidence is fully in the Lord. He says now, 
May the Lord direct your hearts in the love of God and in the patience of Christ. This is another thing that the Lord is faithful to do. Direct your heart. We are poor directors of our hearts, aren't we? They will completely run away with us. And there is not a rain large enough, strong enough that we can place on them to keep them in check. But the Lord is faithful to direct the hearts of his people. And he does so in truth. Paul says he will direct into the love of God. And just hear this simple truth. If you are in Christ, you are beloved of God. He has loved you from the beginning. The evidence of this is that you love him right now. The evidence of his having loved you from the beginning is the fact that you sit here this morning with a measure of love in your heart to this God. Be reminded the Lord's love for you. Isn't it nice to know your mama loves you, your daddy loves you, your brother, your sister, your grandparents love you? Don't you feel all warm inside when they say, I love you? Well, be reminded the Lord God of heaven and earth loves you. And he has expressed that love to you in the person of his son through his gospel. For God so loved, what? He gave. He gave. The last part of this is that your heart would be directed not just into the love of God, but into the patience of Christ. How patient was our Lord? How much did he patiently Endure. Yet how victorious is he even now? That's the pattern. Into the patience of Christ, who for the joy before him, the writer of Hebrews would say, endured the suffering, the shame, the agony of the cross. Paul would say this in Romans 8. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Isn't that amazing language? Perhaps we want to back away from that and say, wait a minute, Paul. You don't know what I'm suffering. How foolish would we be? Paul says, I'm the one who has suffered more than anyone for Christ. He lists great, in great detail all of the things that he endured for the sake of Christ. And he yet says, they're not even worthy of comparison. It speaks to two things. The insignificance, the eternal insignificance of our temporal suffering. And the tremendous glory 
that we will know throughout all eternity. See how those things, you can't even compare those things. Light momentary affliction with the weight of glory. You just can't put them on the same scale. So to conclude, I wonder where Christ has placed you in this text. What I mean by that, are you numbered among those whose faith is growing exceedingly, giving manifest evidence of it? Or are you numbered amongst those that Paul says, not all have faith? That's worthy of your serious consideration. There's only two groups that you can fall into. There's not a third. There's not an intermediary condition. You're either in Christ or you are not. So in this day, we, we have the opportunity to pray. Pray for the advance of the gospel. Pray for deliverance from wicked men. All the while remembering the Lord is faithful and that he will accomplish his purposes in and through us. We are to rejoice in the love of God. Proceed in the patience of Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word given to us this morning. Lord, I I pray that we would all, every man, woman, boy, girl in the room would be found amongst the faithful. Oh God, would you be exceedingly merciful and gracious. Lord, we pray that the word of the Lord, the gospel of Jesus Christ, would run swiftly amongst us and be glorified. Lord, we we know you hear this prayer and we ask you to answer it. Lord, we need it. We don't need any more of what this world has to offer. We need the gospel running more freely amongst us. Unhindered by our own sinfulness. Unhindered by our own shame or being ashamed of the message of Christ. Lord, accomplish your work in the lives of all present. We ask it for Christ's sake and in his name, amen.